Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this program, we bring you a special event recording. Dirk van der Klee is joined by William Stoltz and Jennifer Jacket to explore the ideas put forward in his recent paper from the QuadTech Network's QTN series. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Good evening, everyone. My name is Dr. Will Stoltz. I'm Senior Advisor for Public Policy here at the National Security College, and it's a delight to uh, have you all for this virtual event tonight. So as you may already know, uh, tonight's webinar is part of the Quad Technology Network. The, the Quad Tech Network, uh, or QTN, is an Australian government initiative to promote um, track two research and public dialogue and on cyber and critical technology issues uh, relevant to the Indo-Pacific region. So as part of this initiative, the four quad institutions uh, have come together to publish papers on key issues facing the region. Um, these institutions are obviously the National Security College, and as well as that, we also have the Observer Research Foundation in India, the Center for New American Security in the United States, and the National Graduate Institute for Policy Studies in Japan. So as part of the QTN series, we're publishing a series of papers which offer analysis and recommendations on shared challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific, uh, with a particular focus on cyber and technology. Uh, so the QTN is managed by the National Security College here at the Australian National University, uh, but very much with the, the generous support of the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So for tonight's webinar, uh, which will be on the topic of biotech in the Indo-Pacific, uh, we'll be focusing on the paper which uh, Dr. Dirk van der Klee has written as part of the QTN series. So Dirk is a research fellow here at the ANU in the School of Regulation and Gov uh, Global Governance, uh, and he specialises on the theory of geoeconomics, international economic sanctions, PRC international economic policy, and the effect of industrial policy on geoeconomics. Uh, and so Dirk is also a member of the ANU Working Group on Geoeconomics, uh, and he's a board member of the OXIS Society for Central Asian Affairs. And joining uh, Dirk and myself is uh, Jen Jacket, who is a Sir Roland Wilson Scholar and PhD candidate here at the National Security College. So Jen is researching uh, US-China competition for leadership over emerging technologies and the implications for US allies and partners, including Australia. Uh, so... I wanted to turn, uh, Dirk, to your paper, uh, which, as I mentioned, is focusing on biotechnology in the, in the Indo-Pacific. And I think your paper, you know, it's incredibly timely, um, you know, for very obvious reasons. We're all living in a pandemic world. And it's also uh, timely as well for, for those of you that may have seen the recent uh, James Bond film. And I don't want to spoil it, but it does feature 
a uh, biological weapon uh, targeting people's DNA. So I hope one of the things we can also get out of tonight's event is, is Dirk, for you to also allow me to sleep soundly at night uh, and tell me that we're not all going to be uh, attacked by these uh, uh, horrible bioweapons. But nevertheless, I wanted to start off um, before we dive into the questions by giving you an opportunity um, to kind of outline you know, the core thrust of your paper and give us a sense of the recommendations that you're advocating. Thank you very much, Will, uh, for organising this and for getting the paper across the line down to Jen as well, who helped in the editing of the paper. Of course, any problems are 100% my own fault. Uh, so in introducing this paper, uh, there's really three things that I want to talk about or three questions that I'm trying to answer in this paper. One is, you know, why biotech? Why should we care about biotech amongst all the emerging technologies that are there? Two then, okay, well, biotech's important. Why is the quad the appropriate form to do something? And then the third part is, what should we do? So they're the th sort of three key questions that I tried to deal with uh, in coming up with this paper. And my initial um, thoughts when I did this, I'm going to read something from my phone here. Uh, the, the Quad Leaders Summit met in September 2021, and I'll quote from the text, the Quad will monitor trends in critical and emerging technologies starting with advanced biotechnologies, including synthetic biology, genome sequencing, and biomanufacturing. Um, in the process, we'll identify related opportunities for cooperation. Uh, my reading of that is, yes, biotechnology is really important. We don't have a clue what we need to do. That's sort of my takeaway from that. They understand it's important, but they're not really sure, you know, what they can actually do on biotech. That's where this paper comes in, where it has some real recommendations for initial steps for cooperation amongst the quad. All right, so that's the background as to why I chose to write about this. Um, let's get to, you know, why biotech? And there's sort of three reasons why I think biotech is really, really important. The first, going probably in order of priority, I don't really know which of these is the most important, but if we think about Australia, and I know there's some people from Dyser on here and, and from um, other government departments, if we think about the economic opportunities for Australia or for any country really, which includes China, um, biotechnology is one of the most economically lucrative that we will see coming forward. Um, biotech, you know, the revolution that we're seeing in biotechnology at the moment has really come about because of computing power, AI, um, and the fact that we just know so much more about uh, the genome than we did, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And so we're in a position where a lot of technologies um, now, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, well, you. Yeah, Crop, crop manipulation for um, making crops more drought resistant to uh, really targeted diagnostic medicine to biopharmaceuticals to industrial policy, industrial processes that were once done with chemicals that will now be done with biological processes. Um, you know, things like growing meat in laboratories. There's a, a, a company just up the street from me that is trying to work out how to do, um, how to make fats um, from biological processes in the lab rather than getting them from animal products. Um, so wherever you sort of look in this field, there is so much economic opportunity going forward. As I say in the paper, McKinsey um, thinks that 60% of the processes that we now see in terms of products in the global market uh, can be done through biological processes. Now, some of those are meat, which are, of course, already biological, but will be done in the lab. Others are, you know, chemical processes like drugs that will now be moved over into biological processes. And so we're in a situation where we see 
just economic opportunities going through the roof for this. And in terms of, even if we compare it to say semiconductors, um, the, the opportunity in biotech is orders of magnitude bigger than it is for say semiconductors, even though semiconductors are of course really critical pieces of technology that you can't do without. So that's the first reason. It's just going to be absolutely massive. Um, and if I was to say to the Australian government, one technology um, that we should think for industrial policy, I would say, you know, biotech's a really big field, um, but that is one that I, I would think would be really important. So that's one. Um, two, there are significant security and ethical considerations around um, biotechnology. Uh, so a lot of you will know this, but of course, bio, biology, biological systems are self-replicating. Once they get out into the sort of open world, it's incredibly tough to stop them. COVID is a good example of that. Um, and a lot of the technologies that we see being developed now are dealing with biological systems. And if they get out, out into, you know, you know, open space, we don't control them uh, properly, we're going to have a real issue. Um, the other part of this is there's data as well. I mean, the sharing of human data. Um, there's so many security issues built into the biological systems uh, that, you know, where whatever, wherever this goes, um, these technologies go, we're going to have some significant security considerations that we need to make. And as Will and I were talking about just before we started this, um, we're in a situation now where a lot of that technology is not going to be the hands of advanced um, PhD scientists. Um, they've done a fantastic job of keeping biological risks under control, but we're now going to have people who might be malign actors who have very little background in biological sciences beyond maybe, you know, a, a high school education who will be able to, you know, um, replicate virus DNA, just to take one example. Um, there, there is a lot um, going on in the security space that will require government intervention where we haven't seen yet. So that's the second reason that's important. And, and the ethical concerns as well. I mean, how do we want to share genomic data, um, you know, how accepting humans going to be of um, meat grown in labs, the wide, wide range of um, things that you might want to um, consider on that. So they're, they're, the, they're the main reasons that, you know, biotech is really important. Um, so we've got, you know, something that's really important. Well, what, why do we want, want to use the quad? I mean, if we think about the economic opportunities, what, why um, go with the quad when we, you can go through other, you can just have your own industrial policy, um, there's World Trade Organizations for the trade of biological goods. There's international standards organizations for standards. Um, there's a, a range of global scientific um, communities now that deal with these risks as well. Why, why do we need something for the quad here? Um, I'd argue there's a couple of reasons. One, the technology is changing so quickly um, and the security risks and the economic opportunities are changing so quickly that you need clear plans uh, coming from governments and from groups of governments to move this forward. If you try and talk about ethics and security considerations inside, say, something like ASEAN or ASEAN Plus or G20, it's just going to be so difficult to get agreement um, that a group of democracies, however diverse and are not the same, of course, um, is not a bad place to start talking about security and ethics. It's not a bad place to start talking about standards. And it's probably not a bad place to sort of start trying to group together industrial policies so that, that the including Australia, so that we can benefit as much as possible from the economic opportunity. Um, it's small enough to, to be able to move forward, but it's big enough in terms of its total weight 
that we can, you know, actually do something. Uh, so I think it's not a bad, not a bad forum for what I'm about to suggest. And let's get to the third point. Okay, well, what can we do? Uh, I've got four suggestions in the paper. They're at the bottom of the paper. Um, if you want to look at them, uh, a lot of them are just sort of thinking about things that have sort of been around the place and putting them into the court and saying this is really the right forum for it. Uh, so one is a standards enabling program. So anyone who's read um, Peter Varghese's uh, paper for DFAT on Australia and India, uh, one of the things was a standards enabling program that both sides really wanted. Well, biotech is a perfect technology for that. And why not spread it out to Japan uh, and to the US where we can start you know, to come up with some general standards that we might use, we might then take to the ISO, we might then take to ASEAN, we might then take to the EU, we might then take to the G20, but it's a really nice place to sort of start developing some of those standards on standards that are changing extremely quickly. Um, that's sort of the first thing. Uh, the second thing is, I suggested that we, we start sharing research infrastructure. Now, of course, this happens bits and pieces already, um, but I went through all the biotechnology, the bioeconomy, the various uh, reports that are in Australia, and every time I read something, whether it be in the health space, the agriculture space, one of the recommendations, one of the complaints was, we've got this great research infrastructure, we need to upgrade our research infrastructure, but we're not really sharing it. And it's really hard for the right scientists to get access to the right place, to the right biobank, the right computing facility easily. Um, so we should share that um, technology. And I would think a research infrastructure sharing program um, that would one, share the infrastructure, but probably also identify gaps as well. Uh, one thing that uh, a number of the countries, we haven't really done our biobanking, as well as say even China, China's done a really good job in the last few years, they really see the value um, in this, but also access to computing um, power. Uh, it's, it's really is, and, and laboratory time as well. Um, for scientists and for startups, it's a really something that would help set us apart and something that, you know, various government documents in Australia and elsewhere have been calling for. And so I think this is really a nice place uh, to bring that together. Um, and then the the other suggestion that I have is a security and ethics dialogue. I've kind of already touched on, on why that matters. But once again, a group of four countries, big in the biotech space, but not too many of us. It's a really nice place to sort of start talking about the security implications. How do we do biosecurity around, you know, manufactured viruses? Um, what are we going to do ethics on stem cells? How are we going to think about, you know, sharing biodata? Now, not all four countries are going to come to the same conclusion on each of those, but I think that's a really nice um, place to start um, in terms of moving this discussion forward and, and some low-hanging fruit for the quad to do. Now, one last comment before I hand back over to Will and Jen, and they can grill me and we can have a discussion. Uh, I've tried to be very positive focused. So there's, you could also argue that there are um, other things where we're in competition. Uh, so the, the three big countries in the quad, um, they all are sort of talking about creating a biomanufacturing base. And there's definite competition there. There's industrial competition. And down the track, we're probably going to have to deal with that somewhere. But I've tried to choose the areas with low-hanging fruit where there's clear positive sum uh, activity. I haven't really thought about export controls. I haven't thought about yet managing um, some of the, uh, you know, the competition for industrial policy. Let's let's get the things we can do together first and do the harder stuff as we get a little further on. And that gets to the fourth point, which had escaped me, and I'm glad I um, kept talking there for a second. We've got a lot of vaccine diplomacy going on now um, within the Quad, but outside with COVAX, with bilateral uh, deals as well, with whatever China's doing too. 
And, you know, the court's going to have over a billion doses administered uh, end of 2022, I think it is. Um, at least that's the pledge. I think the next step that we're looking at isn't really just providing vaccines, but a lot of countries, uh, emerging economies around the world are going to want access to, you know, vaccine producing technology. So I'm suggesting that we move the quad, it's called the vaccine working group, I think now, and moving that to a position where we sort of start to have a dialogue with some of the bigger emerging economies and say, you know, what pieces of technology can we actually feasibly share with you? And I'm talking quad here, but you could also talk, I mean, US-China uh, competition is really going down this route. It's not going to be just um, handing out aid. It's going to be the, ne the next step is what pieces of technology and training are you going to be willing to share with us? That's, that's really where it's going, in my opinion. And this is one area where the quad is perfectly suited, given that we've already done the vaccine diplomacy stuff to sort of pivot as we get out of COVID. So I went way over five minutes. Sorry, Will. Uh, sorry, Jen. But let's get into the conversation. No, thanks, Dirk. That was a really valiant effort to be able to uh, give us so much information so effectively. And it is, um, you know, it's a really dense and fascinating um, paper. Um, I want to pick up on, you know, you mentioned that it's uh, your paper's trying to be kind of positive about and, and a bit optimistic about what we can achieve here. Um, I want to perhaps uh, bring some pessimism into the discussion a little bit. Um, I guess I want to ask you like two things that I hope are, are, are kind of cogently related, which is the extent to which we can actually reasonably expect to collaborate with China on biotechnology issues. And you mentioned, um, you know, setting standards and, and why it's useful to look at organisations like the Quad as a way to start to build consensus on standards. But it strikes me that with many of these technologies, you know, you mentioned um, stem cell research, and then we start talking about usage of DNA. These things are very very thorny ethical uh, questions that will come down to um, somewhat different interpretations or different sets of values. And I wonder to what extent do you think we can actually uh, achieve international standards on these things or is it actually going to be the case that we end up with a kind of multipolar uh, groupings of different standards around biotech around groups like the Quad but with other international groupings having different sets of standards and ethical um, measures. Thanks, Will. Trust the National Security College to bring some pessimism into the discussion. Um, I wanted to add something at the start here. When I originally wrote this paper, because you mentioned it's quite dense, I had a lot of fear about writing it because biotech is so, so broad. And one of the differences between biotech and, say, other technologies is you have very um, – each product has different supply chains – and something for like an agricultural crop um, and a biopharmaceutical product and, you know, a silk thread that's created in, in the lab, they're going to have, you know, very, very different um, skill sets and different, um, you know, supply chains. So it's a much more, it's a much bigger topic to, to tackle. And that's why you end up with a dense paper with a lot of broad ranging information. It also means you have to answer tough questions on a wider range of issues. And, what you kind of get out there uh, is really important. I said in the paper that we're, we're heading towards a world where China will lead on probably some of the biotechnologies um, or lead on certain slices of it. Uh, we're, we're now seeing in the pharm biopharmaceutical space that they have a couple of potential drugs in the pipeline that will be maybe first in class. There may be options on it, but, but that's going to be a reality of the world we're living in. So we need to deal with them where we can. 
But I think on the ethics stuff, there's going to be clear, clear um, separation where we're not going to get it. Data sharing is going to be very, very difficult. And I think data sharing just generally, it's going to be hard to, to share um, data with countries that don't have, that have single party states, high, high levels of, um, you know, opacity, uh, where you don't have legal protections away. It's just going to be so, so difficult to do that. Um, and we should, that doesn't mean we give up, but it's a reality of the, of, the, of the situation that we're in. So I think some of the security things that we see, like where we want to make sure we have, you know, general standards around biosecurity, I think we can actually progress on that um, in an international sense where we can see some progress. I think on some of the other stuff like data and some of the ethical things, it's going to be much more difficult. I don't foresee it in big clumps in the way that you've kind of described it. I think there'll be groupings that have similar sort of standards, but they won't be exactly the same. Um, so it won't always be 100% eye to eye, even though I'm proposing a trade standards enabling program, I know that. Um, but we'll, we'll see, you know, similar, but not exactly the same. And there'll be some overlap, you know, between some of those groups, um, but we're not going to get there the whole way, I think. But I do think on some of the biggest security ones like bio bioweapons, I think there is some room there for at least some cooperation. And I'd point out that uh, once they got past the opaque part of the what they were doing, the Chinese government sort of in mid-January did start to share some of the DNA of the virus uh, once, you know, things got pushed out. But I said in the paper, we should discuss with China if we can, uh, but we need to be realistic about the limits. Uh, and, and those limits are, are there. I think they're there and they're very clear for all, all to see. So try our best recognises some limitations, um, doesn't mean we shouldn't go forward with the quad uh, as a really useful vehicle. Thanks, Dirk. Yeah, it sounds like quite the prudent approach. Uh, Jen, I'll let you uh, dive in here. Thanks, Will, and thank you, Dirk, for that excellent introduction to the paper. I want to pick up on one of the themes you were just talking about, which is data, but maybe revert back to what the quad specifically can do. So you've talked a little bit about the sensitivities associated with biodata, given that this could include genetic information on individuals and that might allow people to identify family members from that data or even particular traits about the person. Clearly there are opportunities associated with that for tailored medical treatment, but it could also be misused if in the wrong hands. Um, one of the things you talk about in the paper, which I found really interesting on this point, is that the rise of such risks has led to a shift from this open by default mantra around data sharing to more of a as open as possible, as closed as necessary approach. I'm just wondering how you think the Quad specifically can work together to help sort of implement this approach and regulate and navigate an issue like biodata access and sharing. I know you propose a security dialogue, you propose standard setting, perhaps it's a part of that. Uh, and I guess as a follow-on question, I'm interested in what role the government plays in this versus, say, private industry or the, or research institutions for that matter. Man, that's a great question, Jen. Um, I was hoping, you know, everyone who writes something like this and it's a very small piece of paper, you know, you write dialogues and you don't want to have to say what they specifically need to do because it's much more, it's much harder to do that. Um so let me give, it'll only be a partial answer because I think you're right. The security dialogue is the place for this. The security and ethics dialogue is absolutely the right place for this. And that will need to be a government discussion that brings in um, institutions, research institutions and private business as well. So you can work something where 
we do make sure we get at least some of the benefits here. Um, the sharing of research data is incredibly useful and has led to a lot of breakthroughs, including with Australia and China. Um, so that, that's that's the first thing I want to um, say there. But we, we also now see China making it much more difficult. If, if something, a piece of research is done in China and you want to move that data abroad, um, that when we're talking biodata, it's now very difficult. Um, you need special permissions. And as far as I can tell, it's not really happening on a broad scale. So we're already seeing that breakdown and it's probably going to be extremely difficult for us to share data with China in that way. Um, it's it's just going to be hard to do. Um, but what can the, the dialogue itself, which is the ridiculously tough, tough question, I think we need to come up with a set of guidelines and I don't know what those guidelines are. So hand up and say, I don't know exactly what they are. Um, so that there is still some anonymized sharing between the quad countries. And it may be India isn't included in that at first. Um, India... It, I think will take a slightly different approach where we have clear set guidelines about how this can be done and stored and what kind of research can be used for and trying to find ways where we can keep it as anonymous as possible. And I, I that's going to be a technology solution that I don't have the full answers for here. And I know that's a very dissatisfying answer. It's dissatisfying for me as well that I haven't, you know, nailed it out. Um, but I think that that dialogue is the place to go and we need to find a way to still get some data sharing here. I think the old rules... One of the problems when I talked about the research infrastructure, one of the issues that we have at the moment is that the data rules for each research um, infrastructure are a little bit different and it's really complicated and it's very hard for someone to come and come in because institutions are extremely serious about this. They're not joking around, um, but it's it's very hard for certain scientists to go into certain like biobanks and, and do the research that they need. The amount of clearance is so time-consuming and so different for each organisation um, that it's a real headache. Uh, so I think that this is very necessary. Um, I think that dialogue is a good place to start. And I think we do need rules that are going to probably entail some level of risk so that we can progress this forward. That, I know not completely satis satisfactory answer, but I think that's probably where we're at at the moment. Just as a follow-on question for my own education who holds a lot of this biodata it's clearly very sensitive information but there might be sort of different institutions different levels of government that have different aspects of it i imagine but where is this data sitting at the moment across quad countries yeah so it's different country by country not centralized in any way really so you, you obviously have um now the the health data is not just biodata a lot of time health data is other stuff as well um, but that's that's held by the health services in the states in Australia. I'm not sure where it's held in in Japan, India, uh, and the US. You then also have um, individual researchers that might do like at a university that will do some testing on like particular patients for whatever they might want to do, which would be be genetic testing, and that would be stored by them. And, and there'd be very strict protocols around that. Um, then you also have the biobanks. Uh, so the biggest ones actually in China, they've been spending a lot of money uh, on the China National, uh, the name escapes me now, I think it's called the Gene Bank, China National Gene Bank in Shenzhen. It's actually run by um, BGI, have I got that right off the top of my head? Um, and and so a lot of the, the testing that's, some of the testing that's been done overseas in their sort of, you know, their prenatal um, exams by BGI that have been done in Australia, you know, that data, some of that data anonymised has made its way back into that gene bank uh, in China. And you have gene banks um, in Australia that you know will hold their data. Some of those are government, most of those are government funded, but they run by themselves. Um, of course, then you have like CSIRO will have have, have its own 
um, data stored as well. So it's it's very, very broadly held across different organizations. All the organizations have basic guidelines. Um, the point I'm making is data stored in lots of different places. And I don't think that's easy to overcome and not even desirable, but I think we do want some more um, consistency for access and for transfer between international countries, which at the moment, everyone's very serious about what we don't have um, clarity completely between countries on this at the moment. We'll be right back after this short break. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I, I want to pick up on, um, you know, the, the issue you've raised briefly about uh, us not having necessarily the greatest um, I guess situational awareness or, or sense of perspective about where all the data is and where and, and the, the scale of the research that's going on. It, it makes me wonder, and I'd be interested to get your views about whether this is a bit of an intelligence problem um, when we think about getting early warnings for um, biosecurity incidents, whether we have the infrastructure in place um, as a country, but then as a group of countries to actually um, anticipate uh, when there might be biosecurity events, but also, I guess, to have a sense of where um, issues arising out of research might might arise. I mean, do you think this is something that we need to be better postured to, um, you know, from an intelligence point of view? It's it's a really, really good question, that one, Will. Uh, the first, first thing I would say is maybe a situational awareness but some of the situational awareness is going to happen outside of poor countries if we think of um you know pandemics or or, or the starts of pandemics um that's not always going to be a case of you know it's data stored inside inside the quad that's going to be able to measure that so i don't think that's a full answer but i think a, a clearer picture on where some of our data is stored is a good idea we also need to be very careful um when you talk about intelligence awareness and, and everyone and i think scientists understandably get very concerned that, you know, the intelligence community gets their fingers on that. And that's probably something that they do have deep, deep understandable concerns about. Um, that I, I think there might be room for um, better understanding of where it's stored. But, you know, I don't necessarily think we need to go to the point where the intelligence services have access to that data. I think that, that that's, that's certainly too far from my perspective. I'm not sure if that's what you're suggesting there. But it might be the case if, if there's certain red line trigger points, and I can't think of one, where reporting would be required, um, that might be something that, that would be worthwhile. But I don't have anything sort of to go beyond that. You might even have some thoughts yourself. No, that's fine. I, I guess I'm just interested in perhaps the proposition about 
to what extent can we regard um, biosecurity events like, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic as potentially constituting something like an intelligence failure and whether we necessarily have kind of the structures and institutions in place, both as a, as a, as a country, but maybe even through other kind of international partnerships, whether it's the Quad, whether it's Five Eyes, um, to be actually getting kind of strategic intelligence about how these types of things are evolving. You know, you've mentioned um, the kind of lowering technology, technological barriers of entry for new actors to be able to take up biotechnology. Um, that strikes me as something where, you know, you can kind of see the obvious interconnections between, um, you know, e- ease of access to new technology being met, uh, taken up by malicious actors. Um, and I suppose, you know, is the genie out of the bottle in that regard? Or can we can we put in place new regulations and international agreements to try and, you know, regulate, um, you know, the, the various workforces that are involved in these things? Uh, or is that a little bit too ambitious? I th- well, I'm glad, glad that you, you made that point. Um, that's a really good point. Uh, I think we have to try and regulate. I mean, even, even if genie's out of the bottle, you still have to slow where you can. Uh, but there will be, you're right, there's an intelligence component to that in terms of protecting that data, I think, uh, rather than accessing it, but protect, protecting the data uh, to make sure that the people who hold the data are really... Um, and once again, I think these people are serious, but they have the tools and the capabilities in place to do that. And I think there's actually a nice match here between the Australian cybersecurity strategy um, that, you know, sets out about doing this. This might be a really good um, case use of it. Um, I, I think that's a, that's a really, like, a nice case use of it. And I'm sure... But they're thinking about this, but yeah, if, if we knew better where our data was, you're actually quite right there. I hadn't joined the dots in the same way that you have. Um, and I, in terms of the intelligence failure, let me just put one little uh, caveat here. It's re- it's harder than you think to predict pandemics. Uh, I went back and did a lot of reading of the old um, US approaches, and a lot of times they developed vaccines for things that actually ended up never taking off. So it's sometimes things you think will become pandemics don't. Um, so let's let's, you know, give some credit for how difficult it is. But I think that this one was an intelligence failure. And certainly I think in the US you could say it was where it took such a very, very, very long time to recognise the the risk there um, that was there. And, okay, you can talk about the politics and there's a political failure to it, but there's also an intelligence component um, to it as well. And we we probably weren't as alert to it as we were. There's some specific cases to China and to other authoritarian states that make this intelligence a little bit different to what we might want to do amongst the quad. Um, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I might pick up on a different theme that you mentioned, which I think is really important for the Quad, and that's about capacity building in the region. So one of the recommendations you make is around working with Indo-Pacific partners to actually help them build the capacity of their own biotech sector so that instead of relying on vaccine support from countries like us in the future, maybe they can actually help manufacture some of those things. That's clearly a major investment potentially. So I'm interested in the types of infrastructure skills and funding that might actually be needed to support something like that. But I think it is um, consistent with some of the ambitions that the Quad has outlined to not only work among the four countries, but to actually be flexible and partner more broadly in the region. So I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about that particular proposal. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Jen, for not letting me get away with just a dot point in a paper and actually having to expand on it. Um, Just let me give a teeny, tiny, tiny bit of background um, to this. So this doesn't just apply to biotech, but 
I think we're now in a situation where um, China is looking beyond the classic infrastructure of just roads and rails to more jobs, um, training. That's where they're going in, if we think of BRI, um, which is where I've done a lot of my work before this. And the US is now really committed to providing alternatives to that. So we're in a situation where what's being offered by China is different and US is, is very clear um, about that. In terms of where Australia sits and what the Quad might want to achieve out of that, I think one thing we do want is we want other countries, you know, to develop as much as, as possible. That's the first thing. Second thing, and I, I know I say this in the national security context, we want to make sure that countries do have a range of economic opportunities available to them, not just from one source. Um, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't cooperate with China at all, but we want to just make sure that they have multiple opportunities um, available to them. And, of course, the three, there's the, the cold-hearted thing. If we're talking about setting up standards that suit us as a democracy, um, it's much easier to do that if we provide our technology to other countries. They're, they're much more likely to follow us down that road um, than if there's no technology available to them and they, they take, take a Chinese alternative or an authoritarian alternative. Um, so there, there's, I think, three reasons why we might want to do this. Um, now, what can we actually do? The first thing I would say is I think China's already fairly far down the path of, of deciding it's going to build vaccine production capacity in places like Brazil, Indonesia, elsewhere, uh, and and like Kazakhstan, where I've done a lot of my work, they're building a pretty big biopark that will, you know, do that. So we're, we're already in that situation. It's not mRNA vaccines, but it's just, you know, standard vaccine production. Um, what can we do? I think first thing is making sure that, we, that they have the right set of skills to do that. Um, and it can be vocational training or, um, you know, training even in like, AI data, it doesn't all have to be biological training. Um, the second thing is we're going to have to deal somehow, work out um, to deal with US, co US companies, because it is US companies that are mainly going to be doing this, and how are they going to get over their IPR, their intellectual property concerns? Um, that's, that's, that's it. If, the, if we want this to happen and we're serious about it, we're serious about building capacity in other countries, we need to find a way to work with those companies, and they probably need to be brought in on this to make it you know, palatable for them. In terms of investment, how much would this cost? Well, um, a facility like this is costing the low billions of dollars. So if we're talking a handful around the world over, over a space of maybe five to 10 years, we're looking at a few billion dollars a year probably. Um, it could be that we transfer some of our some of our aid budget into that. Um, but, you know, I think this is really worthwhile and really meaningful. Not everyone's going to agree with me on that, I understand. Um, the second thing is, we have good vocational training in our country and in the US and in Japan and elsewhere. And we do vocational training overseas now. We could just start to pivot some of that towards biotechnologies. Um, so it, uh, like the TAFE does training overseas. It does some of the you know very basic first steps in biotech, in data, big data, um, in AI. That would be something that we could really do. We're in a world now where a lot of the biotech breakthroughs like AI are happening at the tinkerer level, not at the, you know, the big, um, you don't need to have the world's leading biologist to be able to make breakthroughs now, to be able to make meaningful economic breakthroughs um, in the way that maybe was the case 10, 15 years ago. If you have someone who knows a bit, they can already do quite quite a lot there. Um, and then the, the final part is helping them to, you know, build infrastructure where they put some of the money in themselves. I mean, Indonesia is no longer a poor country, but it does need help. Um, doing this or providing sometimes access to some of the research facilities that we have. They are some initial thoughts. They're not the answer, 
but um, we need need some money. I'd think a couple of billion dollars a year from all told from all sources. Um, so for Australia, that'd be hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Um, you know, look at the training and that could be vocational. Um, dealing with the US companies so that they're somehow accepting of moving some of their IPR, doesn't have to be very cutting edge stuff. Um, and, you know, giving access to research infrastructure. I guess there are four points that I could see us um, moving forward. That's great, Dirk. I think it's a very important point you make, even though you couched it initially in geopolitical terms, really it's about economic opportunities in the region and countries being able to, I guess, increase their levels of resilience to future um, health events, but also to be able to contribute to a global manufacturing capacity. And it sounds as though, even though there would be a cost to quad governments and a contribution on research and training and those types of things, the private sector probably would be a natural partner in all of this, given the economic opportunities that you've outlined as well, like some of the other infrastructure work that's gone on in the region through public-private partnerships. Will, I'll hand back to you for some of the audience questions. Uh, thanks, Jen. Um, uh, we've got one question. Uh, you note there is room for a small amount for a pilot program for basic research and commercialization. Can you define small amount with respect to what uh, might be a critical mass required to achieve a meaningful bang for buck? I think, you know, you mentioned that you were talking billions there before. I hope uh, I'm not talking I, that talking, I think hundreds of millions per year over, over many for a country like Australia, billions probably there, but there might be private sector money that comes in. Um, and just let me... They're asking about, you know, research and commercialization. Jen was out asking about um, uh, third countries. Well, I say third countries, I mean non-quad countries. Um, we also have to remember that in the non-quad countries, those governments will help chip in some money as well. Um, they, if we're thinking, you know, some of the bigger emerging economies that are not India or China, they do have some money now. So it's like they're not helpless. They will, if they see real value, they will partner on this. So that, that's something I should really emphasise there. Um, and of course, O and I, science and research, managed to really wheedle down into the one thing that I went back and forth. Am I going to include this? Am I not going to include this? Um, I think I, I sort of went back and forth this for commercialization in that one of the issues, the issues that I see, and maybe O and I sees it differently, but I see with some of the small startups is they're actually able to attract capital reasonably well now. Um, small startups, there's money flying out the door for biotech. Um, and if you can go to the US and get money, there's money flying out the door. So that's not the issue. It's the access to research infrastructure and that first step of getting it from scientific over scientific research over into that first round of funding. Um, that's where it is. I think that can be relatively small amounts of money. And the more I think about it, the more it is getting access to research facilities that's really the key here. I know that's not your question, um, but I, I'm thinking, you know, like millions, tens of millions of dollars a year for this just to get them over that first hurdle. Really low administrative um, costs as well. Sometimes uh, companies will think about doing these doing these programs, that not just biotech and others, but uh, it's such an administrative burden they just end up not bothering doing it. Um, sometimes it's worth wastage if you can cut down the administration if we're looking at small amounts of money. Um, so 
the, the key thing though that I'm actually trying to get away is, is that that very, very, very first step when you're still a scientist and you need to make that jump. Small startups then are actually able to attract quite a lot of funding. And I, I, I feel um, when we talk about commercialization, we need to be really clear what stage of the commercialization we're talking about. We're talking about that absolute initial stage. Past that, I think companies are actually able to get their funding now. We need to make sure they can do that first jump and also get access to the research facilities. Yeah, thank you for that. If I can draw you back to the discussion about um, uh, development aid uh, while we wait for some further questions. Um, I'm interested to know, because it does make me a little bit nervous to hear, you know, on the one hand, the, the remarkable economic opportunities that you've outlined as a result of biotechnology, but it does make me nervous to think about the potential stratification of, you know, the developed world and the developing world if we don't spread the spoils of this, you know, equally. Uh, so to that end, you know, if we were talking about where Australia or the Quad as a collective could direct its um, aid funding uh, in relation to, you know, helping to inculcate biotech in developing countries, is there a particular form um, of biotechnology that you think would have the greatest economic impact for developing countries that, you, you know, that really stands out to you? That's a great question, and I, I, I'm going to weasel a little bit. Uh, so one, one thing is I thought, I'm just sort of working this through my head as well because this was a suggestion. I know I didn't give the dot points as to, you know, where this funding should be drawn from in each government. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be aid budgets. I mean, we have other other ways to do it. I mean, specific step-ups and th things as such as well, there are, are things that are not drawn directly from aid budgets. Uh, some of the new FE, it's not FE, um, Export Finance Australia, not FE, F Export Finance Australia um, funding might be the way to go as well. So there are other routes there um, besides that and to Jen's point about the private sector. Um, stratification, well, I think we live in a, if we just talk about health um, right now, we live in a stratified world. Uh, there's, a, there's a handful of countries that produce pharmaceuticals and I think there's been no clearer demonstration of how stratified that is the second that, you know, countries including India wanted the IP to produce vaccines and it was really hard for them. So I think we're already there. Um, what we're sort of talking about, you're getting at is for the next group of technologies, can we make it a little less stratified? And there's an unfortunate reality that if you want to make a less stratified world, you have to be the one that kind of is a leader in the technology or else you have no say, um, which is also bringing back to stratification. I, I'm well aware of the circular nature of what I'm saying there. Um, so I think we need to focus, we make sure that we're really in that technology that's the first thing that we can do um that that's the first absolute thing that we can do um going forward there's no individual technology it's going to be country by country unfortunately i think lots want access to bio uh, biopharma manufacturing um crop like things for crops uh and this sounds really boring um, but, you know, biological fertilisers that are cheap that are not going to kill the land, that's one that's, you know, really popular as well. We have actual natural strength in that too. Uh, by we, I mean Australia, not the quad in this case. Um, so it is a bit country by country, and it's going to be a case of having to listen to each country and seeing which part of the quad can help. Unfortunately, it's not cookie cutter, um, which makes it more difficult, more expensive, um, and I don't have a, a really clear answer to that. But to avoid stratification, we also need to make sure we're at the head of the stratification, which is, I know, very, very circular. No, it makes, it makes perfect sense. Um, 
Uh, we're rapidly running out of time, but I will I will throw um, Alison's question into the mix. So Alison's asked, can governments play a role in funding the long-term um, underpinning research and early product development? And she's pointed to the example of the, the DARPA model. Uh, you know, do you think a specialist DARPA, DARPA office in Australia for some aspect of biotechnology uh, could work? Well, I mean, yes, like DARPA, DARPA model in Australia would be fantastic one because we have, like now we're talking in Australia's national interest. Um, we have someone else coming in and, and willing to help fund fund our research. I mean, so yes, we we do it. That would be fantastic. Let's suppose the US doesn't want to do it or is, you know, not giving us exactly what we want. So beyond that, the things that we can do but beyond encouraging the US to come here. And of course, we might find some joint 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 model where we can do that. But I do think we need some sort of... Um, dual technology fund that would go down this route that would and we have to be it's going to sound if you're in China it's going to sound like simple military fusion what I'm what I'm suggesting here that's what DARPA is in many ways um, it's not exactly the same and it's much more transparent but that, that is what DARPA is in many ways I, I think that that would actually work quite well the issue is that I think in the in the civilian um, security mix we have more relative secure civilian technology in biotech, relatively speaking, compared to, say, maybe AI um, or semiconductors. So I could understand why DARPA would initially, if they we had a US office here, why they'd want to go to AI before they go to go to biotech. Um, if if, if you, we were to set up this US DARPA model in Australia, so I could definitely see that. Um, but I think it's really important in Australia, and I'm going to write write another report about this down the track, that we do get our biotech ducks in a row. There's lots of individual organisations doing this. You pointed to CSIRO and synthetic biology. Um, we need to make sure that we do get our ducks in a row because this is a really big opportunity. I think it's actually Australia's best opportunity out of all the emerging technologies that are there for us to make um, to, to ensure that we, we get our, our fair share of the economic pie there, uh, simply because we have some pre-existing strengths. The entry... Um, costs are much lower than they are in, say, semiconductors. You want a three nanometer semiconductor manufacturing fab, that's $20, $30, $40 billion, maybe, if you could even get the technology. With hundreds, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, you can have a really high-quality biotech firm doing cutting leading-edge stuff, uh, maybe, probably even tens of millions of dollars. So um, it is different. I'm wondering from your initial question, yes, let's have a US DARPA model if we can, um, if not, uh, I think we still need to probably prioritise biotech over certain other technologies when those choices come up. I say that as a person who definitely has, um, you know, a bias here and I've just released a paper on biotech and I have more papers on biotech coming, so yep, guilty as charged. But I, I think that we probably do need to prioritise that over other technologies in terms of the opportunities for Australia here. Um, in emerging technologies. And there's some, of course, green hydrogen and others we have strengths in and we have advantages in as well. But I think it's in the top top handful of emerging technologies where we have real opportunity. Thanks, Dirk. Uh, Jen. Thank you. Well, unfortunately, we've now run out of time for questions. So, Dirk, I wanted to thank you first for covering so much ground. I think biotechnology is one of the most challenging critical technologies to cover because it has such a wide range of applications across numerous industries. There's many economic security and ethical dimensions, but I think you've brought it all together and put forward some really practical suggestions for the quad. And at the end there, I think you've also drawn attention to the opportunities specifically 
for Australia within that. So thank you so much. Um, I'd also like to, before we wrap up, uh, thank our major sponsor for the Quad Tech Network series, which is the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. The papers produced as part of this series and the webinars that we've done would not have been possible without their support. And as this is the final webinar, I'd also like to thank again all of the contributors from across all of the participating organisations. I won't list all the names, but I'll briefly mention the organisations, which include Perth US Asia Centre, the Observer Research Foundation in India, the Centre for a New American Security in the US, and also the National Graduate Institute for Policy Studies in Japan. I'd also remind everyone that these webinars were recorded uh, as an audio recording or a podcast, and they will all be made available on the National Security College website, where you can also find all of the papers from the series. So once again, on behalf of the National Security College, I'd like to thank you all for coming along. I'd also like to thank again uh, my co-host, Dr. William Stoltz, and also Dr. Dirk van der Klee for his contribution to the series. We hope to see you at future National Security College events. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to subscribe to the National Security Podcast wherever you listen. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.